I'm Austin, and this is Validated. Today I'm speaking with Alex Kavalakis, COO and Head of Product at Hug, a discovery and curation platform that connects Web3 artists with collectors. Alex is also the co-founder of Meta Angels, an NFT membership community which was acquired by Hug in late 2022. Meta Angels was explicitly founded around the values of accessibility, transparency, and generosity. A trio of nouns I would associate more with a nonprofit or a religious community than your average NFT project. However, the Meta Angels team has supported its community in the form of networking resources, grants, an accelerator program, and more. If you're wondering how a project with this positioning works financially, I was too, and we get into that. While there are very few organizations built like Meta Angels, part of their story is something that will be familiar to any startup founder, being acquired. Acquisitions in Web3 are rare, and even more so for community-oriented projects. We get into the details of how the acquisition came about, what it meant for the existing community members, and the right way to think about scaling an organization that is part platform, part product, and part community. Alex, welcome to Validated. Hi, thanks so much for having me, Austin. Yeah, there's a lot I want to get into today, but let's start off with what is Meta Angels? How would you describe the mission of this project? So Meta Angels, I co-founded with Allison Downey back in December of 2021, which now feels like a, a many markets ago. And it came out of a desire to take what we've been seeing in you know, 10K type projects at the time, which was really, you know, common and look at where there were places to innovate and also where there was white space. And so I think there were a few areas we were really interested in. One was innovating on the technical side, which we did with our smart contract, um, innovating with the art, which we did with Serana, and then innovating in terms of what the goals were around our community. And so we built really a community based around generosity and giving back to others, not looking at a roadmap or something you do a quick flip, but looking at how we help people connect. And that's something we were really proud to to build um, and then get the opportunity to merge into what was sort of a sister community a hug at the end of last year. And that's where I'm I'm building now. So it's been great to continue this sort of really community-centric and long-term vision of how do you help impact the space? How do you help impact Web3? I'm a you know veteran of, of Web2 and built many Web2 companies. And I think there's a lot of mistakes we've made that I'm seeing us make again. This is normal human nature. And so it's exciting to at least be part of trying to enact that change. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I want to kind of dig in a little bit there on a few things. So the, the first is like community building is like one of the hallmark features of Web3, right? Especially in the NFT space, all an NFT project is at the end of the day is really a mix of something like rarity and community behind it, right? And those are the two sort of hallmark components of what mm-hmm. this looks like. Um, talk a little bit about that process of building a community that has generosity as kind of a core value, because that's not usually something that people associate with the Web3 space. Yes, very true. It's funny. So the core of what we launched with Meta Angels is something called the wishing well. And the idea was that everyone has something to give, right? Everyone has expertise, knowledge, connections in different forms, different amounts. But when we looked around and Ali and I looked around at some of the most successful people we know and even parts of our own career, what really made the difference was our networks. You know, there's different networks I can tune into. I went through Y Combinator. I went to Yale undergrad. I worked at McKinsey. These are really powerful networks of people who at the end of the day are just smart, connected people who want to help each other. 
Um, and so when we looked at Web3, we saw this opportunity to create a network that wasn't gated by gatekeepers, if you will, right? Someone has to let you into an Ivy League school. Someone has to hire you to a top consulting firm or let you into Y Combinator. You can buy into a community that shares those values. And as long as you're giving back and and participating, well, you can get those rewards as well. And so it was really amazing to see people help other members with negotiating a raise. Many people got jobs, um, help people on mm-hmm. the personal side, deal with the divorce of parents. Yeah. So there's a piece here that I think is very interesting, which is that you're right that in many of these sort of communities, there has to be a process of, you know, applying or being accepted or it's up to someone else to let you in. And in this model where your ticket in is financial, there's pluses and negatives to that, right? On one hand, you can say that like, oh, this is great because the community is more accessible in a in in objective terms. On the other hand, you can say like, well, this is like the classic thing that like a church would have done or a community organization or like the, the analogous in like the non-Web3 space is this is a nonprofit, but that's not the way that sort of this was was structured. And I'm kind of interesting, interested to hear how you and your co-founders sort of teased out what was the right level of financialization to put into a community that's sort of trying to be built in these other areas. Because a lot of this comes yeah. back to like, you think of some of the projects like The Wing, right, in the, in the early days, which was sort of this like, you know, female entrepreneur focused we work competitor. And there's a level of that where it's sort of like, isn't it great that we can fund something like this? At the same time, you're sort of saying, oh, this is just taking capitalism and stepping into something that should be a support network in our society anyway. So how do you sort of think about that relationship? Such a great question. Uh, I think one of the most thoughtful questions I've gotten actually on this part of our of our business in over a year. <laughs> so thank you, Austin. <laughs> I think it's, it's um no, but it's, it's true. It's actually really, really core to it. And so I think what we saw is there was already a budding connection within Web3 of people who were online on Discord, especially at that time, even more so than today, who were connecting from all over the world. And so if we were to do something locally, you know, whether it's Web two or, or or nonprofit, we wouldn't be able to reach a global audience like without, mm-hmm. frankly, cryptocurrency that anyone can use. There's no way to easily have a token gated membership network. It would obviously start with dollars. It would probably start in New York, and it would repeat some of the same patterns. So, from that perspective, right. we really wanted that global online piece that Web three really allowed us to do. On the financial piece, this is where it gets down to that smart contract uh, innovation I talked about. So we built the first sort of ability to lend an NFT into a smart contract for a generative collection. And so I own five meta angels and someone wants to participate. I can loan it to them. I pay the cost of gas, which depending on when it was, was, you know, if you waited for nighttime, it's the cost of a cup of coffee or less. And then they can use it to connect to the meta angels community to participate, but they can't sell it. They can't transfer it. They can't do anything. It sits in their wallet. They can't even get scammed, which we saw as very helpful um, end of 2021, early 2022. Um, And then I can recall it at any point in time. And so we saw with that mechanism of sort of safely being able to share with others, because people would sometimes gift an NFT, but it'd have to be a close friend or someone, if you're letting them use it, you have to really trust them that they're not going to run off with something that might have value. Here, you didn't have to worry about that. 
Yeah. And it was this really fascinating sort of social experiment also, but it, it fit into that idea of inclusion and accessibility. So we saw people giving access to artists getting their start in Web3 who didn't have the money to, to participate, who then met collectors or learned how to use a smart contract this is before Manifold, right? We saw people lend to teenagers in East Asia doing civics work or single moms looking to get help re-entering the workforce. And so it was a lot of people new to Web3 as well. This was sort of lent by a friend, yeah. let me make you MetaMask. They would then get scammed. Luckily, the Meta Angel wouldn't go anywhere. They'd learn a little bit. And they at some point, some people bought their own, some people didn't. doesn't matter. For us, that wasn't really the point. Um, but it, mm. allows us, it allowed us to create this community where it wasn't just the people who could afford to be a part of it. And it also gave you a reason for those who had multiple. Sometimes people have beautiful collections where they have, you know, five, six, ten meta angels because the art from Serana is just beautiful. When they lent it out, they actually got an airdrop of a polygon token that showed a framed meta angel of their meta angel saying on loan. So they could still show off their collection, but they'd be able to lend it out. And so there's people still, I, I have it lent out to journalists who were curious about Web3, all sorts of different folks. Interesting. Um, and it was really yeah. a great part of opening up the environment. So long answer to say, we want it to be global. We want it to be accessible and we want it to be online. And this this was really the model. There's a, a funny thing that happens on the internet where communities can be very strong and powerful. And then they seem to pass a certain size and it all falls apart. Did you run into any of those sort of scaling problems or how did you think about the intentionality of growing a community versus keeping its core? Yeah, it's funny. I always think of Dunbar's number right, that says you can only have 150 or so connections at once when you think about villages yeah. or towns and people being connected. I think online it's a little bit different. For us, it was less scale, actually, as it was sort of some of the dynamics of the of the Web3 space. And so what we did for our Mint, which was completely was, was unexpected, the whole Mint was unexpected. If anyone's curious, I have a Twitter thread where I wrote it down before I blocked out all of the memories <laughs> um, of, of how it went. But what ended up happening is we decided that in order to get onto what we called our gold list, at the time everyone called it a white list, which didn't work for us. And so we said, in order to get onto the gold list and to be able to mint, you just had to participate. You just had to help someone in any way. You could, you know, invite someone, you could uh, reply to a question, but it was already living those values of generosity. And so we had this really active wishing well, growing and building up to our mint. So we were showing the art, getting people excited. But in a time when there was a lot of hype and a lot of FOMO and a lot of, you know, Twitter nonsense going on. We just focused on that. We stayed super under the mm. radar. We used to joke the worst thing that can happen to us is Gary Vee tweets about us before our mint. Love Gary Vee. No, nothing against him. We were like, please, please, please let no one, no one discover us, quote unquote. You know, right? We just want people here who yeah. want to be here, who got invited. And so you'd say, oh, yeah, there's five or six people who were invited by someone from another Discord who they felt would be interested. And that's how we grew. And we went into our mm. mint promising anyone on the list we were going to do it over 48 hours and it would not sell out. So we said, you know, we have enough for everyone on the list to mint their full capacity. You don't have to, but we do not want people waking up at three o'clock in the morning who have kids and a job just so they can mint because they're so worried about missing out. That culture, especially at the time, was so intense. Um, and so we said, that's what we'll do. And we'll probably mint about a third of the collection. And we ended up selling it out. Um, from what we've heard, you know, 30 to 40% of folks on an allow list at the time used to mint, maybe 50 to 60% if you have a really incredible 
you know, engaged community, we had over 90% of our allow list men because yeah. everyone participated. And so from there, we had all the right people. We had all of, you know, the mechanisms in place. We'd done all of it. What actually really bit us in the ass, excuse my French, is all the tracking for DGENs and flippers mm. because we sold so well in those 48 hours, we were on the front page of OpenSea. And all of a sudden, people were like, what's this thing that's selling so well? Right. And as the price went up, there were people who had bought two or three who were like, well, I'll definitely sell one or two of them to recoup, you know, or to make my investments. One right. person sold sold a really rare one and paid off their student loans in those, you know, in those couple of days. And we were looking at it, you know, happy for those who obviously made a financial return, but also really disappointed that it was so easy for the space to tip and for, you know, the foundations of a community to be, you know, all of a sudden have a third of folks who are just waiting for that price to go up and have no idea what we stand for. So they'd arrive and we're like, I'm yeah. sorry, that's not really what we're planning, just so you know. Um, right. And so that, you know, it was that first week and it sort of is what it is. But I actually think that's where the scaling was harder is that the space has different, when you have a mix of actual community building and thinking of, in our case, an NFT is a membership card. And in the other place, you think of it as a financial instrument, which certainly some people do and are treating it as such. I think that's where the incentives get really misaligned. But we, you know, we made it through sort of working through expectations there and just focused on continuing to do what we do best. We gave out uh, 0.25 ETH every week, uh, no strings attached, of an angel grant all the way through the end of last year. We would pick from someone, anyone in the community. You didn't even have to have a meta angel. You could have it on loan. And it went to helping people fly to meet their family for the first time since the pandemic or to take a course they'd never taken or to buy gear so they could pursue a hobby or to, to one of my favorites was to get stuff to help take care of, you know, dogs and cats that were strays at their work site. And it's just, you know, about putting that generosity into action. So we were able to stick to it, but the scaling is hard for sure. Um, I think it's a hard thing in general and in the space even more so. Yeah, I kind of want to go back because all of those things you described to me sound like what a nonprofit would do. They don't sound like what a for-profit, for lack of a better term, right? I mean, but for what an NFT project or a community project that is building something that's trying to make money sort of would do. And I'm curious about this because most of the models of any sort of community-based for-profit organization if they're not running on dues, right, which is like most, very few run on dues nowadays, they run on having an investment fund at the end of the day that is sort of saying we're going to build a, this is this is the on-deck model, this is, you know, fill in the blank. Most of these are built on, the wing had this model a little bit too for it. They work on the ability to sort of have a deal flow sourcing component. Was there a fund component as part of the, the end vision here? There was not in terms of having sort of deal flow or things like that. There's a, a lot of, quality networks I'm a part of that that do that and sort of take a for-profit model. I think doing that with venture funding is very challenging, right? Like yeah. that's, I think, where the wing and other places, when the expectations of growth and community align, I think that's where it's really hard. It's funny, every business I've ever started, I've at some point been asked if it should be a nonprofit. And it's something that's asked a lot of female founders. I'm not saying that's why you're asking. I think I can see why you are. Yeah. But I think it's even more so, right? Like you expect that it's about giving back. And I think you can have a for-profit that has impact and that builds community that also provides a service. And being yeah. a nonprofit is really hard to maintain. 
right? Like I serve on a board of nonprofits. I give to nonprofits. It's really hard to build a business that way. Um, and I don't think things need to be, I think, I guess I'll put it this way. I think for-profits should have impact and therefore we shouldn't limit impactful work to nonprofits because it limits the scale and the scope of what you can do. Yeah. So for me, I guess the thing that jumps out is how does a project that's focused on these values become financially sustainable? I know Meta Angels is acquired by Hug, and we'll get into that in a second because the notion of a merger of Web3 communities is super fascinating. But going back to Meta Angels, what's the model for how this would work over the longer term when so much of its resources were allocated to distributing grants to community members? Yeah. I mean, the the grants were a small portion of our spend, but they were impactful and from an individual donor perspective. I think what I would say is we did two things. One is when we priced our mint and when we looked at what we were doing, we took into account the market could change. We took into account U.S. taxes and we took into account the portion, the significant and properly significant portion we gave to our artist and said, we want to have two years of runway. Um, Having built multiple businesses between us, we were like, we need the time to build and scale and not to immediately have to turn around and say, how are we going to make money? Because I think you make really poor decisions when you're backed up against the wall. And so even when the merger happened, we still had runway. We still had choices and opportunity. The other was looking at, you know, we were always looking at diversifying revenue streams. And so we had done, you know, six figures of partnership revenue in our first year um, with big companies, including Adobe. We have the tequila uh, with liquid Mm -hmm. collections. So there's a couple of different, you know, things that we had done to start diversifying that and had plans to continue doing so. And, you know, it was a small team. We were really thoughtful to stay lean. We were not planning on taking VC funding or any other external funding, which we had both done. Makes sense for a lot of businesses. I don't think it makes sense for a community business like this. To the point we made earlier, the pressure to scale something like this is um, is how you break it. And so that was sort of how we approached it, was saying, we know we have time, we know we have multiple avenues, and we're going to keep layering those and taking into account the market. And um, I don't know if anyone predicted exactly where the market went, but it allows us to, to still be in a good position despite that. So that's sort of how we approached it. And knowing that so much was also going to change, that within six months, 12 months, there would be different opportunities in the space. And, and you've certainly seen it. I've, you know, mints that came six months after us would say, okay, great, here's your membership card for a year, and then it's a monthly membership. And then six months later, people were trying something else. And so I think we we trusted that we'd be able to continue to innovate and add and monetize while serving the community rather than monetizing the community. So I want to talk about the process of going through sort of an acquisition and merger. There's been a few of these in the Web3 space, but they've largely been technology acquisitions. But what we haven't really seen is NFT projects sort of joining larger groups or communities. How did that kind of come about? And just structurally, how did the community navigate through that process? I th- I don't think it's the right move in many cases. For us, a lot yeah. of stars happened to align. And we weren't we weren't looking for it. And I don't I don't actually think Hug was was out looking for for a target either. It sort of um came to be. So I think there's a few things. One you know, my, my co-founder, Ali, and I both have a, a high bar in who we work with in terms of ethics and experience and background. And we'd known Randy over a decade here in New York. Not well, right? But we've, we've sort of crossed paths for, for many years. And when we started, we both started in Web3 around the same time. 
She advised Meta Angels from the early days. We were involved in a lot of the early thinking about Hug. She met Debbie, her co-founder for Hug, in the Meta Angels Discord before our mint, when it was like a couple hundred people, if that. And so we'd been sort of closely aligned and done a lot of community-oriented sort of partnerships and collabs and events together and things like that. So there was already quite a bit of overlap um, in terms of our, our sort of business backgrounds and, and knowledge of each other. And then our community had a strong overlap. So something like 20 to 30% of the hug holders actually also held Meta Angels. So we had a lot mm. of people in common, which we thought was important, a lot of values in common in terms of how we approach things. And I think without that, if the communities don't you know, speak the same language or have a similar style, it's quite difficult um, to try and, and merge folks in. And um, in the summer of last year, we ended up having a conversation with, with Hug and a couple other communities we were close with and talking about how sort of wasteful we found the way that communities were being managed on Discord, where everyone was doing the same collabs and had the same channels and had the same stuff and users were just getting so burnt out. And the initial idea actually was to take four communities and pull them together into a single Discord without merging the communities themselves, but to merge the operational hmm. side and say, we just have a single collapse person. We have the really top-notch community managers. All the education comes from this group that does a really great job. All of this comes from that group. And each of us would bring what we are really strong at and deliver even more for all the communities. For various reasons, that's challenging with that many communities, but it started the idea of like, is there a way to do this better? Because we are all just doing the same stuff and this users are bouncing between the same places to enter raffles. It's just such, you know, such friction and a lot of FOMO. And so that's sort of where that conversation started. And then um, I ended up seeing Randy in person. We were joking around, just like, maybe it just makes sense to like, just, just consider something that two these two communities, like we're game to try something. And that's sort of how it evolved. It actually went pretty quickly once we we started talking hmm. about it. Because by the summer of 2021, Discord communities were less active than they had been. It was a lot of burnout for folks who'd been online nonstop for six months, checking every single Discord. You can only have, I think, two to three Discords you really check often, unless you're like, yeah. spend all your time there. And so the odds of being that Discord goes up, the more communities are being managed in the same place. So that was a bit of the conversation around that. I'm a product builder by by trade, sort of product management and an operator. Um, and our team was small. Hug has four fantastic engineers. I had a really fantastic designer. We started talking about what we could build if we built together. And that's sort of where, where it went. So I'm now running operations and product there. And a huge part of my job is building the platform, not, right. not the community, so that we can continue to deliver um, services, as we talked about before. Yeah. So taking kind of a step back, like, what about Hug and its structure felt like a right fit for your community? Because I think if you're thinking like, oh, there's a Randy Zuckerberg project named Hug, you're like, oh, this is this is probably the worst. Just structurally, all of those things together, like that feels like what you would name something if you were trying to pull one over on a community. Um, but obviously for you guys, like th th this made a ton of sense, but like how did you sort of establish trust with an organization that like this is a group that's actually going to help not only expand our vision, but also not compromise it over the long term? Yeah, I mean, I think Hug had minted it back in April. So we were acquired in, in November and our community is really familiar with them. 
you know, many people had minted in return. We did an event with them at NFT NYC. Um, Randy had spoken on some of our spaces. Like there was already a knowledge of folks and, you know, their community manager, Lore, who's their head curator, had been an active early member, an OG member of Meta Angels. So there was enough cross-pollination of people that I don't think there was ever a concern about. I actually think the opposite, which is that we were all doxxed, which now is much more common but we'd been docs from the beginning. So it's actually a lot less worry about pulling one over from that perspective. And, you know, Randy has a track record of what she's built. And a lot of what her space lies is where the overlap of arts and tech. And, and I think that's the, the thing that for me spoke, spoke true. And I could tell was a true passion is how do we actually help artists and art succeed and use tech to do that. And, and that's a big part of the NFT space that, it, that that's a part that feels much more real to me, right? Than the mm-hmm. than the sort of flipping and pumping and dumping and, and all the things that I think will, you know, will end up we'll look back, it'll be a small percentage of people, but a high percentage of trades. Um, yeah. but people are not necessarily there for that. So I think that the trust part we weren't concerned about at all. I think the alignment piece ended up being around what is it that they're building. And so, you know, from what I could see on the outside at the time, they were building a review site for NFTs, which was really interesting, but not necessarily yeah as passionately aligned with what we were doing um, and, you know, had a long, long conversation with them about what they had planned and got really excited about that. And that's a big part of what I'm, I'm building now. It's a really creator-centric community. It's really helping connect collectors and artists. We still have the wishing well and the, the sort of generosity piece in the Discord, but we, we get to continue to allow, you know, one of our, I didn't mention this, one of our, our big programs at Meta Angels was our Artist in Residence program. Every month mm-hmm. we have an artist, we feature them for a month, both on social and other places, but we can pay them and commission a piece from them. And then it's a freement for our community and we get to uplift these incredible creators. We're still doing that now at Hug um, and being able to sort of continue to, to think about that that idea of inclusion in Web3 and, and evolving the space. For me, it's, it's how do we continue to sort of push the envelope and how do we look at how the communities can do more? Hug had some great and continues to have really great programming that our community loves um, that they used to be invited to already, but is now <laughs> a key part of what we do. So that was a that was sort of ended up being a no-brainer, actually, believe it or not. As much as from the outside, yeah. it might not look like it, knowing where they were going it became more a question of, okay, how do we do this? You know, it's funny because a few episodes back, we were talking with a Web3 musician, Black Dave, and he was saying that the friction of Web3 is really one of its advantages from a creator side. You're not fighting with this algorithmic feed, and that creates intentionality in the overall experience. We also had Legion from Variant on a few weeks back, and she was talking about how creator economy businesses that didn't work in Web2 can work in Web3, but at a smaller scale. A lot of what Hug is trying to do seems to fit this thesis, which makes me wonder, how big do you think Hug should get? Or really, how big can Hug survive getting? Yeah, that's a great question. I think there's a difference between the Discord community and holders and people who are sort of actively involved in that way and the number or scale of artists and creators we can support on the platform. I think of those very differently. I think the creator side can Mm. scale. I mean, the way that Etsy can scale, right? Like, I mean... They 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 now are sort of you know have have opened it up to less of what they were started out to be, but there's really I think no limit from that perspective. And what we're really looking at is how do you help people discover creators and sort of 
take out all the noise of Twitter or Instagram or other things and show them artists that you can search mm. by abstract art or photographers or music. You can look up women artists, you can look up a child artist, you can look up artists with chronic disabilities, you can look up, you know, all sorts of different things and discover and find really cool people. And so the sort of discovery piece there and using Web3 has been really cool because we're not the ones curating the artists. They apply to the platform, but then yeah. our holders are the ones who vote them in. So there continues to be that layer of here's what you get. You get hug points on the platform you can later redeem for art. So you're still getting sort of benefits to being a holder in terms of expanding. And, and you can redeem them for other things as well. But the main thing so far has been really cool art from amazing creators. And so there's this element of how do you help artists and collectors connect in a, like a socially sort of authentic way. You know, reviews has turned into sort of really a shout out. It's being seen yeah. in a space where you feel invisible. So I don't, I think that's, that can really scale, that can scale to fashion, that can scale to music, that can scale to authors and podcasters and all sorts of folks who want to connect authentically with fans just on what they're creating. On the flip side, I do think community is something that is harder to scale. And you're always going to have some people who participate more and less, some people who come back and who don't. And if you expect people to be there daily, it's not the right there, you know, I don't think it's good for society for any expectation to be on, on Discord daily necessarily. Sure. But that is somewhere where I, I do think it makes sense to stay smaller. So that's where we think of it. We call them our curators. If you're a holder, you participate in, in sort of the curation on the site as much as you'd like to. You get special access to things. Um, but we don't limit everything we do to only people who hold our tokens. And so I yeah. think that's how I think about scale is you've got sort of the inner circle that's participating in a more community-oriented very Web3 collection sort of way. And then you've got a platform, which is operating like a Web2 platform would, which is come, use us, participate, leave a review for an artist you love, discover someone new. Yeah. And we have more features coming there that will also continue to enable that. One of the interesting things here is that the type of community you're describing is one that often requires a significant amount of moderation to maintain. Web3 is very historically hostile to moderation. Um, how have you navigated that process? And I'm sure there have been situations where there have been community disagreements over something, especially when you're dealing with sort of art and artists and curation. Talk a little bit about that social and human side of, of running a Web3 community. Yeah, so the, the way we've really done it was by, and, and the way that Debbie and Randy sort of set the foundation for it was around um, the hug points that we have and how you, you can use those for, to reward and incentivize behavior. And so on the site, it, you know, you get points for voting in artists. We take a, a large number of votes. We average those out. And we sort of, you know, look at that average over a number of folks so that a single person can't tank an artist, but you do take into account how excited the community is for that artist to join the platform. When it comes to things like the reviews on the site, those are actually community moderated. And so when you if, you, if you go to the hug.xyz, create a profile, go through onboarding, you'll get 250 points. When you leave a review, you have to spend 50 points. So you can leave five reviews before you're, you're sort of stuck. And then you wait. And when those get approved, you get points. If you write shitty reviews or spam or you're hateful, you never get those points back. And so we have right. this sort of a couple different mechanisms like that. And the community members who moderate the reviews to make sure that they're quality, they get points for moderation that they then trade in. But you don't get to moderate reviews till you've written a certain number of quality reviews yourself. So we have a few sort of checks and balances that allows the community to moderate itself with participation from those who want. 
And if you don't want to, you know, write reviews and moderate reviews, you just want to vote on artists, that's fine. If you just want to discover artists, go buy from them, that's fine, right? There's no, I think there's no one way to participate in the community. You always want multiple avenues for people to to be a part of it. Um, some people yeah. come to in-person events and meetups, um, but that's sort of how we've worked through moderation is by using that, but not tokenizing those in a way that is, it's not trading it in for dollars, right? Where you can have incentives get sure. really skewed. It's, you know, you get to level up as a curator, you get to get art, you get special access to things. And that has really worked well for us. Interesting. The reason I'm kind of like wanting to dig in on this is like a lot of the community moderation decisions kind of often come down to is the community or the platform or the artist the most important component of that ecosystem. And I'm thinking along the lines of in the non-Web3 world, artists fall from grace all the time for legitimate or non-legitimate reasons, right? For political opinions, for things they may have done or may have not done. And that is one of the most contentious things that's sort of sweeping artists in the art world now. In those sorts of potential situations, what do you see as the responsibility of yourself as sort of a founder and someone running a platform? In those cases, because we are community curated, I think our responsibility is to make sure we have the paths and avenues for the community to respond in a way that that makes sense, right? And so it could be that we put a halt on something and put a decision up to the community. It could be that we build a feature that allows for voting on whether someone should be removed. We don't have that right now. We haven't needed it. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't pre-build some of those things necessarily until we know exactly the use cases, but making sure there's a path for that. But the whole sort of concept for us is we are not the central gatekeepers of what art should be on Hug, but we're mm-hmm. also not open for anyone to just create an artist profile and have it be flooded with whoever, right? You want to make sure sure there's actually an artist behind there. They don't need to be well-known, right? They don't need to have connections. They don't need to have a gallerist, but here's who I am. Here's my work. And if the community is excited to learn more about them, that's enough. And so on the flip side, if things, if things go wrong, we do have sort of uh, a more active committees of folks who, who are, are very involved in the community that we'd probably start with that group and working through some of the questions, but we could very well put it up to a vote. It's also, I think it depends on what it is, right? From a value system perspective, hateful language is definitely a line, right? That would be much stronger. Mm -hmm. So the idea of a political opinion versus someone who's being racist or super hateful in in their work, I think would also probably require a different approach. The reason I've been spending so much time on this is that I think free speech is going to be one of the messiest and most contentious issues in Web3 as more people on board. If we look at the way the internet began, it started out as a very pro-free speech space. And we've seen the sphere of what's considered free speech on the internet get smaller over time, sometimes for the better and sometimes for the worst. So it's interesting to talk to people like you who are in a position of having to navigate these potential speech issues in real time for a technology that is inherently censorship resistant. Yeah, I agree. The thing that's also interesting to me is because of sort of the system we have with curators, the ability to level up right, with how many reviews you've written or moderated or or how much you've participated, is we can also choose to make features that are only available to level 10 curators and up, that are like, you've been incredibly active, you've seen a lot of reviews, you have a lot of context versus anyone, right? We can decide sort of how to, how to leverage the community itself in any of the things that we build without having to say it's us because we're at the top, 
we can say any any community member could reach this level if they were active or have been active. It's lifetime earnings, right? It's not monthly. But you could say, okay, if people have been active and have a really good sense of our values, what we do, and they've been part of the community, we can we can trust that they have a sense of what they should do here versus maybe someone who bought in yesterday. Um, right. And so that's also something, a lever that we, we've sort of thoughtfully built in is the ability to um, to take almost like tenure, but it's not quite tenure, it's yeah. not time-based, but participation-based tenure into account so that we can mm. include um, that perspective and how we approach these things. Yeah, that's interesting. It's sort of almost something closer to a Wikipedia model than a social network model. For this, yes. For this piece of like yeah. how much you've contributed. And it's funny because the community on Discord and the platform really complement each other, but they do offer different things, right? If someone wants to come in and say GM and share memes and talk about an artist they discovered and have a conversation about it, right now that's happening on Discord. We do yeah. incredible spaces, like multiple spaces a week that are really fun. We're doing an innovation laboratory right now, partnering with Haymint, where it's like a two-week sprint and artists can come and learn about new burn mechanics and collaborate together and like come up with a new collection if they're interested. And then we'll showcase them in a gallery in New York. Like we're doing all this fun stuff, but that's not all in Discord, right? And I think that's part right. of it as well as, it's, I mean, a year ago, it felt like communities just had to live on Discord and that's not real life, right? Like it's not, yeah. a business can't be Discord. That's a branch of your business, an important one, um, but it's not the whole thing. And, and so in order to really think long-term, where are we in five years? How are we impacting Web3 creators and our community? You need to be building a platform or whatever your version of that is, a pr real product, not just building on top of a, a gaming chat, which I yeah, you, you know, know have a love-hate relationship with, but you know, that's not enough, I don't think. Yeah, you know, this is sort of an adjacent point, but I, I think it's really interesting that if you look at when people stopped paying quite as much attention to Web3, it aligns very closely with the easing of lockdown restrictions and when people started going outside again. And it also aligned with when the price of ETH dropped. Both things together. It's that those who could flip for a quick gain wasn't quite as worth it for them. And people mm -hmm. who were at their computer 20 hours a day now had a life again. And it's a good thing yeah. that people have a life again. Yes, it's a good thing that people have a life again. Um, so I, I actually want to like dig in a little bit more on that, though, because like you talked about this process of moving off Discord a little bit and into these other channels. Was that driven by some sort of sense that we needed to do this? Was this something the community was actually telling you? It's like, hey, we love Discord, but we'd love more other kinds of interactions. And, and what did you try before you sort of found this system you have now? Yeah, I mean, it, this I, this predates me because it was, you know, Randy and Debbie before the, the acquisition. But from what I know, it was always a plan to build a platform and thinking of the community as the heart of what we were building, but not the only way that we could serve them. And so... Mm -hmm. You know, we're all product builders on the team. We've sort of seen seen that it's both from my perspective, there's a risk component, right? Of like who knows what Discord could do or not do. Having a whole right. business on there is kind of crazy. And the other is whether or not I don't know if I saw it coming the way that it came, but it's like there we we said this from the very beginning with Meta Angels. We're like, you do not have to be here every day. If you come in once a week, a hmm. couple times a week, some people come ten times a day. We're happy to see you whenever you come, but you shouldn't feel guilty. Yeah. We'd have people come in and say, I'm so sorry I haven't checked in. I'm like, this isn't a job. This should be a fun place you stop by, right? And that is adding to your life where you want to come, but it's okay if you don't. And if you build a business that requires people to give you all of their attention, it's really hard to hold their attention all the time. And then you, and then it just 
only goes downhill from there. If you build a business where you are providing value to people, you know, then they have a reason to come back. And so, you know, we've seen less of a drop in attention than I think many other communities have because the people who are actively involved in curating artists are interested in doing Mm. that. And sometimes they have, they're busy for a little while and then they come back and the system is set up that they can come when they're available and they can participate the way that they'd like. One thing I want to talk about before you go is Angel Labs, which is not a venture fund, but your community accelerator program. First, I want to know how you run an accelerator that's not a venture fund and have that be a profitable or even break-even experience. But then also some of the details of how it works and why you wanted to build that into the Meta Angels community. So Angel Labs really came out of some conversations we had after our mint. So I went through Y Combinator back in you know 2012 with uh, with company I was at for a decade that I co-founded, The Muse. Ali had been through Techstars and had you know mentored Techstars companies for years and years. Gabe, who sort of is our technical, amazing genius uh, based in Miami, he actually went through Y Combinator six months after I did, but we didn't know each other until we found him in the Flower Girls Discord, which is a great fun <laughs> story. And we literally picked him up and interviewed him on Zoom. And he became and is still not only a friend, but our, our tech lead for, for Meta Angels while also running, you know, a hundred person engineering team in his day job, classic web three. <laughs> yes. um, but he, you know, we were talking about how we were so fortunate to know so much of the business side and what we needed to learn for our mint was the web three side. At the time, there weren't the same tools around a smart contract, but how to actually innovate in a smart contract and make sure we were doing so in a way that was re- responsible in terms of adding yeah. the lending tech, how to do generative art before there were generative art generators. We actually built a tool. It's still on my computer to like, I would just push a button, generate art, right? And all these things. And so we thought about, you know, why is no one doing sort of the YC of Web3 at the time and taking operators who actually have knowledge of an industry, who have connections in an industry, who have, or a community, like who have something real and who are, have a reason to make it in some way NFT enabled. Didn't have to be a collection, but that there's some sort of NFT enabled component of it. And they just need help with that piece because Mm -hmm. it was almost easier to learn Web3. Not The community building is its own beast the same way as it is in Web2. But the tech, the taxes, all of that stuff, we just Googled and and, and asked people, like, there has to be a better way. And so that was really the premise. Um, And we, we did a cohort. We had 300 applications in less than two weeks. We ended up, we thought we'd pick 12 companies. We picked 16, knowing not everyone would, would mint the same way that not everyone, you know, launches coming out of YC. We've decided, you know, not to launch a second cohort in the fall because so much of the tooling had changed, right? A lot of things were a lot easier to launch. Also the market had changed. So, you know, it's, there's, it's not, you know, closed to the idea of launching more cohorts in the future, but we want to make sure we can add the same level of value we did with the first cohort. And to your question, I want to get to your question about the financials. Instead of taking a percentage of equity, we took a percentage mm-hmm. of mint, same way that you know YC or someone else might do. And so that paid for the operations of the of the cohort. We had a someone run the program with two employees, you know, full time for the duration of the program and really, really focus on making it a really great experience for the companies going through it. And if we do it again, we'll probably do either something similar or or evolve it if the market has evolved. But it was, you know, making sure it was at least break even. And if it made money, great, that could feed back into Meta Angels. But if it didn't, all of those companies gave some sort of perk or 
access to our Meta Angels community as they minted and launched, whether it was a Lao list or a free mint or a discounted mint or some sort of collab or something. So it ended up being you know, mutually beneficial from that perspective as well. So where does this kind of go from here in your mind, right? Like there's this contention very often in venture-backed organizations where there's a there's a requirement to grow from an investor standpoint, um, which is not always the right thing for the organization or the company. I think if you look at something like most of the community-oriented projects on Web2, they, they either had to scale or they had to die. And there, there's very few that have created anything close to a sustainable business model while staying in sort of a small community. Do you think that's possible here? Or are there huge aspirations for, for Hug and the platform? That's such a great question. I, you know, I've, I've raised VC uh, all the way Series yeah. C and beyond with the Muse. We are over 75 million users a, a year and, and with tons and tons of corporate and startup clients. Been through that roller coaster and definitely think a lot about what businesses should be and shouldn't be venture-backed. I actually often counsel entrepreneurs about, are you sure you want to raise funding? Like, are you sure you are know what you're signing up for? Yeah, <laughs> Which is 100%. sell or get acquired and grow really fast. If you don't want to yes. do those things, don't take this money. Uh, and no one really tells you that the first time around. And so I think here, Meta Angels was not the kind of business I would want to raise venture funding for, as we as we talked about. I think Hug yeah. is in a different position because of sort of the platform and how we're approaching it there. Um, we also have Hug Studios, which we didn't talk about. It's one of the reasons that Angel Labs, you know, the cohort model that we did there, we didn't feel the need to do another cohort because Hug Studios has a pre-mint program called Hedge Hug, a post-mint when you're like scaling and fundraising what called a good Group name. Hug. And an, I know Hedge Hug is the best. Hedge Hug and Group Hug. And then there's um that their art Air Hug is there, there's also an artist in residence program that we sort of brought together with the the Meta Angels ones. So and there's just tons of amazing programming, education, resources, advisory coming out of that. And that's a sustainable model that also pays for itself. So when looking at sort of the, the different avenues for monetization for Hug, but also the scale. I think just scaling within Web3. Uh, if, you're say, if you say either I'm going to make a lot of money or I'm going to be really, really big in Web3, I don't think that's enough. If you say we want to do for online creators who are looking to connect directly with their collectors, fans, et cetera, what Etsy did for selling crafts, it's actually really big. And when you look at where those artists are right now, it's completely fragmented. You know, they're on Twitter trying to get attention, but then they link off to their Shopify store on their website and they link off to the, you know, drop on Manifold. And over here, they link off to Foundation. And then they, on Instagram, they're trying to sell prints to, to it's just, it's, it's com- so much friction for a one person or sometimes two person shop. When I see a lot of friction, my eyes light up from a product perspective because we can make it better. And Web3 alone isn't actually the way to do it, right? There's like just a question of being actually truly artist-centric, and the marketplaces in Web3 are not that. There's some tools that are very, I'd say, artist-friendly and artist-focused, but the marketplaces are, are serving the sellers, particularly those who are high volume, in many cases not serving the, the artists at all. And so by really sort of flipping the script there and building in a way that is for Web3 but applicable to use cases outside of Web3, I think there's a really exciting opportunity to scale. Yeah. Interesting. Well, Alex, thanks for joining us today on Validated. No, this was a great conversation, really thoughtful. I I love a chance to have a conversation that sort of takes a pause and looks at a 
a broader sort of perspective versus sort of the moment or the meta or whatever the latest news is. I think it's one of the things that that comes to mind the most for me when talking about this space, and I think you hit the nail on the head with your your last question, is we are still really small. People talk about being early, like, oh, we're still so early. Is it being this really great thing? Which it is. We're actually still really small. Like if we had every wallet of everyone active in Web3, would still be smaller than like a mid-sized Web2 company if you had 100% of the yes. market. Right? Like it's just not that many users. And so although there are some big spenders and big whales who have very specific needs and many companies are going to make money serving those people or taking a fee transacting from those folks, that's not where I think when you fast forward to what Web3 will be able to do in the future, that's actually not the use case that I get excited about. When you think about mass adoption, you think about abstracting away Web3 layer and not needing to have your MetaMask and your keys and all these things that my sister or my mom are never going to do. But you think about it as, right now, websites run on AWS. They used to run on servers. I'm a user. I don't really care where they run. The site just shows up. That's what Web3 will be. It will be, who cares where the data came from? The website is, oh, cool. I log into this other website and it still has my info. How useful. Oh, look. Yeah. I don't like this site, I can actually bring all my content or whatever it is to this other site. That's awesome. It's not going to be this sort of very technical, very, um, I mean, inner circle, frankly, type of type of space as it is today. The thing I'll add is, is whether it's trading actually, you know, the FX, you know, of what do you buy, sell um, actual cryptocurrencies or whether it's selling NFTs for a profit. I think of it like stocks. Like I don't sell individual stocks to make money because I know I'm not good enough to do that. It's a very specific expertise. Some people have developed that expertise in this space, but the average consumer is not going to make money there. It's very hit or miss. And there will be a percentage of people with a use case in Web3 that do that, but the actual broad use cases are not going to be big dollar percentage swings, right, that we're looking at here, what kind of the space is known for today. And it's going to be using it for actually useful things. Um, Randy, I just heard her say this yesterday to someone, tells this great story. She talks about how it's like the beginning of the the app store for, for the iPhone mm-hmm. and how at the beginning, like all the mobile apps kind of sucked and VCs lost a ton of money and people were like, I don't know if mobile is really going to be a thing because the top app was a Zippo lighter picture that you could just hold up. Oh, yeah. And then things the evolved. Right? Remember? Yeah. And then oh, things yeah. evolved to things that made sense to use mobile for. Mobile first, actually useful. Oh, wow. Since I have it, you know, Google Maps makes a lot of sense. I use it every day. Like, you know, those sorts of use cases. And I think we're still at the beginning of figuring out what those are for Web3. And so we're yeah. taking sort of the artist lens um, in Web3 and beyond. I think there'll be others. But that's where I get excited. And it's one of the reasons that we're actually building product right? And not just building community because the future of Web3 is not Discord communities. It will yeah. be the early start. There will be OGs. There will always be culture there. And it's super important. Um, don't get me wrong. But I don't think we're going to onboard 3 million people to Discord or 100 million people to Discord. But we might actually onboard them onto the blockchain, whether they realize that's what it is or not. And that's where the long-term possibility really is. Well, Alex, thanks for joining us today on Validated. Thanks so much for having me, Austin. Validated is produced by Ray Belli with help from Ross Cohen, Brandon Ector, Amira Valiani, and Ainsley Medford. Engineering by Tyler Morissette. 